Before, uh, well, turn in your Bibles to that passage of Scripture. Keep your finger there, and we'll uh, we'll study it in a second. But before I begin, I just want to say how much I have enjoyed being here. Uh, I guess it's four Sundays of the last five. It's been a, a real blessing to be able to minister to you. And thank you for your your attentiveness, your warmth, your encouragement, the way that you have blessed me. I've I've uh, enjoyed my time. Uh, you really have an awesome church, and I want to commend you. Um, just watching what God is doing here, sensing his spirit amongst you is encouraging for me as an outsider. You also have an amazing staff, and I've gotten to know some of the staff people here and, and being blessed in our interactions with them. And I'm just excited to see how God is going to use this church in the, in the months and the years to come as God brings your next lead pastor and as he continues to use you in this part of the world. I, I'm confident that he is going to do great things uh, through you and for his glory. So if you have your Bibles, go to uh, Haggai chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at, uh, at verse 10. As you know, <clears throat> there have been um, three messages or three days in which messages were delivered through Haggai the prophet in 520 BC. Uh, the first one was in the first day of the sixth month, 520 BC, and and, and that was about the need of the people to get busy building the temple. Sixteen years before that, they had returned from Babylon under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Uh, their task was to rebuild the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had completely destroyed, just raise it to the ground, obliterated it, essentially. Their job was to come back and, and reestablish the worship of God. And so they laid the foundation, they built an altar, they started worshiping God, ordained priests and Levites. But the temple itself was still not built 16 years after they arrived. So Haggai spoke to them at the beginning of chapter 1, and he, and, and he preached the word. They received the word of the Lord. They reoriented their priorities to conform with the priorities of God. They began to get passionate about his glory and his honor, and they prepared to build the temple. And uh, they began. They started. The second message came a little less than a month later, the 21st day of the seventh month. And this was a message of encouragement. So clearly the people were a little bit discouraged, feeling a little overwhelmed by the task, maybe a little despondent, needing encouragement, needing motivation. And so God speaks to them and he says four things very clearly. Don't look at what you see, look beyond what you see. And we talked last week about how the fact is that God has always got a plan. Even when we can't see it, God is at work. So let's just keep on keeping on. He said, be strong. Don't don't compromise. Don't equivocate. Don't let the people of your culture pressure you into doing things that you know are wrong. Keep on following me. Keep on working on this temple. Keep on being passionate about my glory. And then he says to them, work and don't be afraid. Why? Because I'm with you. I'm in your midst. I'm for you. I am your God. You are my people. So keep on keeping on. Work and don't be afraid. And then trust him. Trust me. The cattle on the thousand hill, uh, uh, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. The wealth of every mine is mine. I own it all. I'll provide for you. And we know that he did. And then now, <clears throat> beginning in verse 10, the 24th day of the ninth month, a couple of months later, the prophet delivers two messages this day. The first one is to the people, the second one is to Zerubbabel, the governor. And he makes a magnificent promise. 
a glorious promise for the people of God. And this is what it says in, in, in verse 8, 19. Although the seed is not yet in the barn, and the vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the, oil, and the olive oil trees have not yet borne any fruit, from this day onward, from this point, I will bless you. I am going to abundantly and beautifully and powerfully, effusively pour out my blessings upon you. A message of hope. Despite their unfaithfulness, despite their unwillingness to get busy and build a temple, God says, now that you have repented, now that you have got your priorities right, now that you're in a proper place, I am just going to overwhelm you with the blessings of God. Within a few months, God proved, uh, made good on his promise. He proved that he is trustworthy. In Ezra 6, we read about a letter that the emperor... Darius sent in reply to a letter that had been sent to him by the people of the surrounding uh, nations. They sent a letter to Darius and saying something like this, Darius, do you know that these Jews have started to build a temple? Do you know that Artaxerxes had told them to stop? Do you know that they are a rebellious people? They are an insubordinate people? They will not pay to the royal treasury. If you allow them to build this temple, nothing but bad can come from it. But they're doing it, Darius. The response from Darius is just an expression of God's goodness and his grace and his love for God's people. Darius responds surprisingly and says, you know what, don't stop them. Let them build that temple. As a matter of fact, We're going to pay for it out of the royal treasury. And if anybody opposes the Jews, anybody stands in their way, let his house be torn down and let him be impaled on one of the posts from his house. That was a shocking thing. That would would have been bewildering and shocking and and, and caused all kinds of consternation to the people of of the land. Why such a change? Well, we know the answer to that. The the answer to that is that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And when God says, I'm going to bless my people, he blesses his people. And that's exactly what God did. And God began to bless his people beautifully, powerfully, effusively. This was to be the kind of lavish blessing that the people of God were to experience, to enjoy. And from now on, for the foreseeable future, as this temple was being built, as this revival was continuing, they were going to be in the bullseye of God's blessing, right in the center of God's blessing. And I want to tell you, this is the most exciting place to be this side of heaven, to be in the bullseye of God's blessing, to be in that place where the Spirit of God has absolute freedom to pour the blessing of God into the life of the people of God. There's no hindrances, nothing to hold his hand back, nothing to stop him from overwhelming us with his goodness and his grace and his blessing. The most exciting place to be as a Christian, this side of heaven, is to be 
in that place where, where Paul describes it this way, to see God doing exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we can ask or imagine in the church for his glory. There is nothing more exciting than to live through that moment in history when God opens the windows of heaven and for the glory and for the name of his son pours blessing into a church that is ready to receive it. And again, we call that revival. To see the lost saved in droves, to see individual broken hearts healed, families healed, communities healed, nations healed. And if you don't believe it's possible, read the history of the church. It's happened time and time and time and time again. And I thought about taking time this morning to sort of talk about some of those events in the history of the church, but I I just don't have the time. But I would encourage you to make it a study, to see what God has done in the past. Now, before we go on, I want to make something perfectly clear. I'm not talking about the prosperity gospel. Please don't understand that I'm talking about you individually, that God just wants to make your life better, to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise, to just solve all your problems and take away all your struggles, because that's not what God promises us. It's through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. He takes us through difficult times. And there may be times in our journey where he just opens the windows of heaven and blesses us abundantly. And we need in those moments to be thankful. But there are times in our lives when he takes us through difficult pathways. He disciplines us. He shapes us through suffering. I think of C.S. Lewis that says, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us in our pain. And sometimes we know, I know that we need it. I need it to be shouted to by God. And he does that through difficulty. So I'm not talking here about the prosperity gospel, that that God is for you, therefore you're not going to have problems and you're just going to live this wealthy, healthy life. That's not the gospel. It is a false gospel. I'm talking about revival. When God pours his blessing into the life of a church. So how did this transformation happen? What, What changed What was it that was modified or transformed in order to allow God to do what he did to so extravagantly and so richly bless his people? And what lessons can we learn as the people of God as we as a church move towards the center, the bullseye of God's blessing? The first thing is this. There's two things. First thing is this, genuine repentance, repentance, authentic repentance, So here's the message on the 24th day of the ninth month, verse 10. In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by the Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts. And he asks two questions. And here are the two questions. Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat, so meat that has been sacrificed now to God, this is holy meat. If he carries it, a priest carries it in the fold of his garment, so in his apron, And that apron touches stew or wine or oil or any kind of food. Does that food become holy? The priest answered and said, no, it doesn't. They knew the law. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these things, so if a person who has become unclean by touching a dead body touches wine or food or stew, the question is, does it become unclean? 
And according to Leviticus 22, Numbers 19, the priest answered and said, yes, it does become unclean. Since Haggai speaks for God and says this, so it is with this people and with this nation. The people of God had become unclean by virtue of their contact with a dead, lifeless temple. That's the point. That's the message. They had become unclean because they were in contact with a temple that was dead. It was moribund. It was lifeless. There was no energy. There's no dynamic there. The Spirit of God, in a sense, was not there in their worship. And as a consequence, the people of God and their work for God and their offerings to God were all defiled because of their contact with this dead, lifeless temple. What they were doing as a consequence was not neutrality. They were not just existing. The temple was saying that the God of Israel was weak. He was powerless. He was impotent. The God of the Babylonians are obviously stronger. Their temples are still standing. His temple is in ruins. That that would have been sort of a, a statement of neutrality in a sense, status quo. This is what we've lived with the last 50, 60 years. What they were doing was worse. They were defiling the nations by their testimony, which was saying, yes, you're correct. This God that we worship is really not worthy. This God that we worship is really not that important. This God that we profess to worship, this Yahweh that our fathers have followed, he's really not that big a deal. And that's what God is saying. You are communicating something. You are actively involved in besmirching and sullying my name. God is saying that their apathy, their carnality, their nominalism, their lukewarmness, their carelessness about the temple has caused them to communicate to the people around them, the surrounding nations, that everything they had been believing about the God of Israel by virtue of the fact that his temple was in ruins was in fact true. You see, the people of God were communicating a message about God that was wrong. They were saying things about Yahweh that weren't in fact true. They appeared to be true, but they were wrong. Yeah, they were worshiping, They were working, they had been for 16 years, they'd been working on a foundation, hadn't got the foundation finished in 16 years. They had priests and they had sacrifices and they were orthodox. But their lifestyle, the way that they were living was contradicting everything that they knew to be true about the God of Israel. Their apathy towards the temple, their lukewarmness, communicated very clearly to the people around them the worthlessness of Yahweh. You see, Israel's purpose, its essential fundamental mandate, the reason that God created it in the first place, her temple, her worship, was all to glorify and to extol 
and to manifest the greatness of the God of Israel. That's why God created a people, to reflect his glory to the world. The way the moon reflects the light of the sun, that was Israel's purpose. And what Israel was doing at this particular instance, because of their half-hearted, lukewarm nominalism, was saying, in fact, God's not that great. God's not that worthy. Oh, yeah, we believe in him, sure, yeah, we worship, yeah. We go through the motions, and we're pretty darn orthodox, I've got to tell you. We've got our theological, doctrinal I's dotted and T's crossed, but he's no big deal. He's just like any other God. So God asked them to think about what their life was like before when they were living that state of unrepentance for 16 years. And I'm not going to read it for you, but you can see it there in verses 17 and 18. God was depriving them. They weren't living a blessed life. They would go to get some olive oil and they thought they had this much and they had this much. They wanted to go get some wine and they thought they had lots and they had little. And what they did have, God blighted and made it useless. Why? Well, the answer is pretty clear. Because of their nominalism, because of their lukewarmness, because of their apathy towards God. I don't think there's anything that is more reprehensible than a Christian in the Old and New Testament, a worshiper of God in the Old and New Testament, having their theology correct and living an apathetic, cold life. But that's what's going on here. That's what's going on here. And so Haggai comes and he preaches and the word impacts them and they change their priorities and they begin to worship God and be passionate for his glory and they begin to get busy on the, in the temple. They repented genuinely, authentically. From the heart, they repented. And so God is promising to richly bless this ministry. And the reason is obvious. They had made the Lord God of Israel their priority. His glory was now their passion. And his house, their primary focus. That's how they got to being in the center, the bullseye of God's blessing. They made the Lord God of Israel their priority. They made his glory their passion. And they made his house, his temple, their primary focus. And if you want to move to that place of blessing, that's exactly, exactly what we have to do. Now, there's no church that's exactly there because the church is made up of people from all over with different passions and different perspectives about who God is and his glory. But as God revives a church, that's what he does in our hearts. That's what he wants to do in all of our hearts. Turn over in your your Bibles to the book of Malachi if, you are in the old, if you're in Haggai, you've got two books to go. You're going to have Zechariah, 14 chapters, and then you're going to get to the little book of Malachi. Malachi was written probably 20, I don't know, 25 years later. We do know that the temple has been built. The temple has been dedicated in 516. So this is probably early um, 4th century B.C., 400 BC. So 
Haggai um, is, is the last of the Old Testament prophets raised up by God to deal with the sin of Israel. And so in a nutshell, there had been a revival during the time of Haggai and then back into nominalism, back into lukewarmness, back into apathy. And that was manifesting itself in the fact that the priests were receiving lame and blind, blind animals from the people to sacrifice. It was manifest in the sense that divorce was rampant in the Old Testament church at this time. Adultery was a huge problem. They were intermarrying between the people of God and people who worshipped other gods. They were not tithing. They were calling evil good and good evil. And so I want you to look at this. Chapter 1, verse 10. And, and again, Malachi is a conversation between God and the prophet. And this is, this is, what, he, this is what God says Now listen to this. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors of the temple, essentially, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering in your hand. Can you you see that? God says, I just wish there was somebody in the people of Israel who come to that temple month after month after month who are living these nominal, dispassionate, cold, apathetic lives. I just wish somebody would have the courage to slam the door shut and say, forget it. Let's just shut this thing down. Let's just shut her down. You know, that's not just an Old Testament message. That's a New Testament message. Go to Revelation chapter 20. I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, the last book in the Bible. This is Jesus speaking to the seven churches. The church of Laodicea was on the postal route of Asia Minor. Look at what he says from verse 15 and following. Jesus says to this church, Now remember, these are Orthodox Christians. They believe in the resurrection. They know who Jesus was. They know their theology. They're going to church. They're involved in small groups. They're probably tithing. They would probably tell their neighbors, hey, I'm a Christian. Sure, yeah, I go to church. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would would that you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I'm rich. I have prospered, I have need of nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Then he's down verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on the throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who is an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Half-hearted, orthodox, lukewarm, nominal, dispassionate worship makes Jesus want to vomit. And you understand why, right? You can understand why. You know the truth. Church of Laodicea, you know the truth. You know who Jesus is. You know that he is the living son of God, God incarnate. You know that he died on the cross You know what happened Easter Sunday. He rose from the dead. 
He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is high. He is exalted. He sits today at the right hand of God. All authority in heaven and on earth is his. And you are apathetic about your relationship with him. I don't need anything. I've become rich. I'm satisfied. I'm comfortable. And Jesus said, you don't have a clue how wretched and poor and blind and naked and pitiful you actually are without me. And then he says this, to Christians, to us. This is the invitation that Jesus gives to each one of us every single day. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any one of you, any man or any woman, any young person, any child, will open that door, I will come in. And we will have fellowship. We will be intimate. Because that's what he longs for. That's what we should long for. That's what eternal life is, right? What is eternal life? John 17. It is to know him. To live in a relationship with him. You see, half-hearted, indifferent worship says that Jesus is not worthy. An apathetic, cold, dispassionate, lukewarm relationship with Jesus contradicts everything that we believe about the gospel. When our lives contradict our confession, it's probably best that we just close the doors, shut everything down, sell the building, give it to another charity, and just quit. Because the reality is that what we are saying is not neutral. We're convincing people out there that Jesus is no big deal. And that's a big problem. That's a huge problem. Better to not worship, not be a church, than to worship in such a way as to deny the gospel, demean Jesus, and contradict the message that we preach. So what kind of a, what kind of a people does Jesus truly bless? I want you to go to John 17. John 17 is uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's the fourth gospel. Jesus is praying for his disciples, and then he's praying for us. He's praying for those people who, down through the corridors of time, will come to believe on him as Messiah. And so he begins to pray for his church And I want to read you this, and I want you to see the prayer repeated three times and the reason for the prayer repeated twice. Now, when Jesus says something, we listen. When he says it twice, we pay special attention. When he says it three times, we sit up and we listen carefully because it's important. And he's praying to his father just before he goes to the cross. And this is what he says. I do not ask, this is verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe on me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Do you see the thing he prays three times? He prays for the unity, the cohesion, the love of the church. 
He prays that the church would live in such a way that it would love one another. There would be profound unity in the church. That there would be selflessness and kindness and sharing. That we would grieve with those who grieve and rejoice with those who rejoice. That we would live together in a gospel ethos. The gospel ethos is simply this. I've been forgiven, I forgive you. I've received mercy, I can show you mercy. I have been loved, I will love you. Jesus laid down his life for me, I will lay my life down for you. It banishes selfishness and it banishes pride and it banishes all of those things that are part of lukewarmness. And why does Jesus pray this? Not once, not twice, but three times. Why does he pray that God would build us into a powerful, profound, beautiful, perfect unity? Simple, so that the world will know that God sent Jesus. So that the world will know that God sent me. Do you see the connection? When we, the body of Christ, live like Jesus, Christ incarnates himself in us. The world sees it. You see, what the world couldn't see in 520 B.C. and what the world can't see in so many churches because they are so lukewarm and so conflicted, and so not living a gospel ethos, what they can't see is that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. This is why the church is so critical. When the church lives the way the church is called to live, passionate for Jesus, opening that door every single day, and living in relationship with him, living out that gospel ethos with one another, forgiving and serving and loving and laying down our lives for one another, we create an environment into which the person of Jesus wants to be. He wants to come to our church. Now that's the center. That's the bullseye of God's blessing. And I know that you want that for your church. So Jesus says to you, behold, brother, sister, I stand at the door and knock. And I want you to open that door. I want you to banish lukewarmness and I want to banish nominalism. Being orthodox is good, but it's not enough. We need to live in relationship. I in you and you in me. The unity of Christ with his people is so critical. And when we do that individually, then 10 of us and 100 of us and 600 of us and 1,000 of us, We create an ethos, a low-pressure, as I said my first Sunday here, a low-pressure into which the Spirit of God longs to rush. Repentance always precedes revival, right? Forgiveness always precedes, precedes healing. We talked about this passage, 2 Chronicles 7. My people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins. And the consequence, I'll heal their land. Revival will come. It will come. It'll never come without genuine repentance. Orthodoxy doesn't bring revival. It is a passion for the person of Jesus and a passion to live like him in the context of this temple. We'll talk about this in a second. 
in the context of this temple, that causes Jesus to show up. If you want to be in the bullseye of God's blessing, fall in love with Jesus. Live in relationship to him. Pray, be in his word. Practice his presence. Fall in love with him because he's worthy. More and more and more every day. Fall in love with him. Revival happens when we're in the center of God's blessing, the bullseye. And that starts with repentance. But there's another thing, quickly. We've got to understand the bigger plan of our great God. We've got to understand the bigger plan of our great God. So go back to Haggai, if you're still in John as I am. And see what the prophet says. This is a message came on the same day specifically for to Zerubbabel, but also for the people. It was not a private message. It was a message of hope. It was a message of motivation. It was a message of promise. It was a message that created a sense of anticipation and optimism in the hearts of the people. And this is critical for revival. I want you to notice three things as we begin this. First of all, real quick, Zerubbabel was the grandson of the last legitimate king of Israel, King Jeconiah, also known as Kaniah and Jehoiakim. That means Zerubbabel, as the grandson of the last legitimate king of Israel, was in the line of David. Secondly, God says in this passage of Scripture, I'm about to shake the heavens. Look at the verse 21 halfway through. I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms, plural. I'm about to destroy the strength of kingdoms and of nations and overthrow the chariots and the riders. And the horse and the rider shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts. So secondly... I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow kingdoms and overthrow thrones. And on that day, God says, I am going to take you, Zerubbabel, and you will be like a signet ring. Signet ring was a ring that was worn by the king. He used it to make his stamp on documents, on laws, on letters, etc. The signet ring was the stamp, it was the promise, it was the, it was the demonstration of the king's authority and power and sovereignty. And so what God is saying in this passage of Scripture, on that day declares the Lord of hosts, verse 22, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So what God is saying here is that Zerubbabel, you are going to be a, a mark, a stamp of my authority, and I'm going to stamp upon you certain things. I'm going to stamp upon you certain realities that are going to echo down through history. So who was Zerubbabel and what did he do? The first thing that's very obvious is that he, like Moses, led an exodus. He, like Moses, led the children of Israel from bondage in Babylon back to the promised land. He led the people to freedom. That's the first thing. And this exile from Babylon is a type in which God stamps a future reality through Zerubbabel for us to see. 
It's a type, it's an illustration of the exodus that Zerubbabel's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would one day lead. An exodus not from political bondage like Moses or Zerubbabel led the people of God. An exodus from the bondage and the penalty of sin. Jesus, this is, see, Zerubbabel is speaking. He is prefiguring Jesus. And he's speaking about the fact that one day the Lord Jesus Christ will lead an exodus, leading people from the bondage of sin and the penalty of sin into the freedom of forgiveness through the cross, an exodus that will be accomplished at the cross. That's why when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, in the book of Luke, the way Luke describes it. He's talking to Moses and Elijah. And you know what they're talking about? They're talking about the exodus that he is about to accomplish. Your, your Bible will translate it departure, I think. It's a, I think it's a shame that we translate it that way. They were talking about the exodus that Jesus was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Jesus led an exodus through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. He is bringing millions, billions of people from the bondage of sin and slavery to sin and the penalty of sin into a new life and freedom and forgiveness with God through his blood. But secondly, Zerubbabel reestablished the fledgling kingdom of Israel. It's interesting, this prophecy didn't come to um, Joshua, the high priest, it came to the civil governor, the guy who was standing in for the king, Zerubbabel. Although Israel was not independent at this time, he nonetheless established Israel again as the people of God in the land. So Zerubbabel clearly brings to mind David, the king who established Israel, but also prefigures a king who was to come and a kingdom that would one day be built. And then third, Zerubbabel built a temple. Like Solomon before him who built a temple to God, to his glory and to his honor, so too this coming Messiah will also build a temple. But this temple would not be a physical temple like Solomon's temple or Zerubbabel's temple. This temple was going to be a flesh and blood temple. A temple made with living stones. A priesthood where all of us would be believers. A temple that would be made up of people from every tribe and language and nation all over this world who would come together and worship and glorify and honor and praise the name of Yahweh and have Jesus in our midst as our high priest So Zerubbabel brings to mind and pictures Solomon. But he also prefigures Jesus, who would build us, who would create what we are part of right now in this moment, the temple, the new temple of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Zerubbabel, that signet ring, was a message of hope, a message of anticipation, a message of encouragement, a message of optimism to the people of Israel that God had a plan. God was going to do something magnificent. Now, clearly, they didn't have the perspective. They didn't have the clarity that we do. We can look back with 20-20 precision. We can see absolutely clearly what God was talking about. But that doesn't diminish the fact that God made promises that encouraged these people, gave them hope and optimism. God had promised a new exodus, 
a new king, a new kingdom, and a new temple. Now, this wasn't simply unique to this prophecy. All through the Old Testament, God was saying the same thing. Daniel was a contemporary, relatively speaking. He was still alive at this time, but he had before written these words. This is in Daniel chapter 2. This is when Daniel is speaking to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, after Nebuchadnezzar has his dream, where he sees that rock coming made without hands, this, 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 this rock that isn't of human origin, coming and hitting this statue that represents the great world empires that would arise, the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire, and hitting them in the time of the Roman Empire and causing this em- all the empires of the world, the kingdoms and the nations, to crumble. And at, that rock begins to grow and grow and grow and fill the earth. And what does he, Daniel, say? Daniel says, interpreting this whole picture, he says, the God of heaven at that time will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. You see, the people of God in the Old Testament, the Old Testament church understood that God had plans. They knew that a Messiah was coming. They knew that God was going to do something magnificent. But as I said, they didn't have clarity, but it gave them hope. It gave them optimism. It gave them a sense of, yeah, God's at work. And it allowed them to keep on keeping on for centuries. Clearly, they didn't see what we see today. But what they did see inspired them. So how much more should what we know and what we see inspire and motivate us as the people of God? As we draw near to the end of this this study, I want to just say this to you and a few more things before we stop. When it appears that the church is in retreat and when it appears that God is not working, it's critical that the people of God have hope, that the people of God are optimistic that the people of God don't throw in the towel, that the people of God, despite what the headlines say, despite what's going on in Ukraine, despite what's going on in our economy, despite all the challenges and the difficulties we have, that the people of God, despite all that, are undergirded with a sure and certain, absolute, unshakable, unequivocal hope. Hope, Markham. My heart for you is that you would live up to your name and be overflowing with hope. And that that hope would motivate you and propel you and encourage you and drive you on to keep on keeping on for the glory and the honor of Jesus. So where does this hope come from? Folks, the latter Zerubbabel, the latter Moses, the latter David, the latter Solomon, the one in whom all of these stories find their focus, find their goal, has come. And he has built us into a kingdom. When he saved you, he transferred you from the kingdom of darkness and he moved you into the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus is your king today. All authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Our king has told us, 
unequivocally, powerfully, boldly, I will build my church. And hell cannot stop me. Nothing in this world can stop the progress of Jesus on this planet as he saves people and he transforms them one heart at a time. We are an unstoppable force. And he has made us part of a magnificent kingdom. People from all over this world today are worshiping the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ in Africa and Asia and in China and in Vietnam, in Korea, in Turkey. I'm sitting outside an old cathedral that the Muslims had turned into a, a museum. And I hear singing down the street. And I said to the tour guide, I recognize that song. He says, oh, that's a church. They're not supposed to be here, but that's a church in Istanbul. He is building his church. The church is growing throughout this world. And it doesn't surprise us. Jesus said we'd start off as this tiny little mustard seed and grow into the biggest thing. He's doing it. We're like a little piece of leaven that a woman put into a hunk of dough and it permeates the whole thing. He's doing it in Russia today. He's doing it all over the world and he's doing it here. Hope, Markham. Hope, Hope, Markham. He can't be stopped. He's the king. He has built a kingdom and he is working through his temple to bring him glory and honor and praise and worship because he is worthy, is he not? He's worthy. So there's our motivation. You cannot be stopped. So hope, hope Markham. Never quit hoping because Jesus is on his throne. His kingdom is coming. His will is being done on earth today as it is in heaven. And no one can stop him. Satan can't. Evil politicians can't. Emperors and dictators can't. Nothing can. Nothing will. So let me conclude by saying this. I'm convinced that one of the reasons we don't see God reviving our church and moving in ways that we'd really love to see him move is that we really don't expect it. For some reason, that hope has dissipated. We don't pray for it. We don't live in such a way as to create the environment into which the Spirit of God could rush. We don't have the hope that God will do what he promised to do. And this is the hope that we desperately need to recapture, folks. It's the hope that needs to burn bright and hot in my heart. And I hope it's the hope that burns bright and hot in yours and burns for as long as God gives you breath. Hope, hope, Markham. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we know that real repentance and hope are critical to seeing your kingdom come and your will be done. Or at least they're critical to us being involved, us being included, us participating, us being allowed to enjoy the blessing of being in the center of your will. So, Father, would you do that for us? Would your kindness lead us to repentance where we need to repent of lukewarmness, where we need to repent of 
living in a way that belies and denies the gospel, preaching a gospel of mercy and grace and selflessness and love and not showing it, taking great joy in the fact that Jesus has given so much for me and yet having a difficult time giving, whether it be a tithe or a gift, using my spiritual gifts, time. Lord, would you allow that gospel ethos that we talked about to just continue to percolate in this church family so that the world might see that Jesus is here, that we would live in such a way in such incredible gospel unity that the people around us in this community would recognize that Jesus is in our midst that you sent him, Father. Would you incarnate yourself amongst us, Lord, in new and fresh ways in the months and the years to come? And Father, would you give us hope? Give us that sense that just cannot be subdued, that yes, Jesus is at work. He cannot be stopped. He is building his church. And Lord, let that be the motivation, the motivation that keeps us praying keeps us serving, keeps us giving, keeps us keeping on for the name and the cause of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen.